Hello and welcome to the Tech UK podcast. My name is Jake Wall and I'm the Policy Manager for Skills and the Future of Work at Tech UK. That means my role is focused on how the UK can help prepare and support businesses to thrive as new technologies and innovations change the world of work. Part of my job is hosting regular events and webinars, some of which you may have attended as part of our Exploring the Future of Work series, where we've looked at other topics like the role of place in the future of work, the metaverse, the gig economy, and others. But today, I'm delighted to be hosting my very first Tech UK podcast to kick off 2024 with a bang, joined by excellent colleagues, Sinead Casey and Derek Tong from member law firm Linklaters to discuss the outlook for tech jobs and investment in 2024. Every year, Linklaters publishes its tech legal outlook bringing together analysis and insights from their lawyers around the world to identify key themes and trends set to shape the upcoming year. You can read a bit more about this year's outlook in a guest blog post on the Tech UK website written by Derek. And 2024 promises to be yet another busy year in tech as businesses contend with recent leaps in AI technology, two major elections and challenging geopolitical headwinds. So for the first half of this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Sinead Casey, uh, employment partner at Linklaters, to discuss what we expect to see in 2024 at the intersection of technology, jobs and employment. Uh, Sinead, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I know you advise on a broad range of employment advisory and regulatory issues in your job. And as any good host, I've of course read your bio, very familiar with your work, but maybe you can tell us and the listeners a bit in your own words about what you do and the perspective that gives you on the business and employment landscape. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have this conversation and I think it's very timely. So uh, as sort of short intro to me. So as you say, I'm an employment partner at Linklaters that covers a really broad range of work, which is part of the reason why I like it and it keeps me interested every day, right across sort of corporate transactions. So employment aspects of buying and selling businesses through to a broad range of advisory work, senior exec appointments, uh, terminations, you know, day-to-day HR issues, as you might expect, and then also the contentious side of employment law. So when things go wrong and uh, employers and employees end up either in the employment tribunal or in the high court. So really every every day is different. And um, I work with lots of clients in different sectors, but particularly a lot of clients in the tech sector. And I think there's lots of interesting issues that hopefully we can touch on today. Definitely and no shortage of topics for us to, to dive into. And it's probably no surprise that I'm going to start with AI. Um, 2023, a huge year for, for AI um, as generative AI burst onto the scene. New multimodal AI tools demonstrated the huge potential of AI in generating all types of content and accelerating productivity. Um, I know I used it in my own work for brainstorming and planning. It really does save a lot of time. And it's quite nice to have a very patient co-worker to bounce ideas off of and interrogate some thinking as well. But as we enter 2024, the hype cycle seems to maybe have died down a little bit or moved away from some of the more existential narratives. So what are you expecting to see from AI this year? And how are businesses thinking about AI as they try to grapple with these new developments and what they mean for, for them and their business? I love this topic and I think it's such an interesting example of employment law as a living and breathing aspect of how employers and employees engage with each other. I think AI, we've seen it, as you say, increasingly becoming a feature of the modern workplace. And that's right through the employment life cycle. So recruitment, line management, promotion, monitoring, surveillance, appraisal decisions, 
right up to termination of employment. And that's not sort of new as of this year, but I think as you correctly say, the evolution of chat GPT and generative AI and how that really burst into the public consciousness in 2023 brought a real renewed focus on that for employers. Um, and looking at both, I suppose, the opportunities that arise with that, but also the risks. And I expect that there will be a lot of focus for employers on that in the year ahead in terms of understanding and addressing what those opportunities and challenges are, because there's very clear opportunities to drive efficiencies and new ways of working. But the flip side of that, I think, is managing potential legal risks, and that's around decision making. So considering things like your reliance on the output um, and issues around perpetuating bias and discrimination. Uh, and then there's also um, you know, the other aspect of this, which is managing workforce concerns on job displacement. And we've seen a few high profile you know, issues where this has arisen this year, most notably the um, screenwriters guild strike in the in the US and concerns there so it's it's looking at that and kind of whether reassurance is needed and also I suppose the potential need to upskill your workforce if you're actually implementing AI. Yeah that's interesting that you bring up job displacement I think one thing that jumped out of our making AI work for Britain report that we published last year looking at the impact of AI on work and jobs in the UK and if you haven't read it, this is your cue to go check out the Tech UK website and go and read that. Um, but one thing that jumped out was the potential for transformation across every sector. And I think I actually saw an IMF study this week that noted around 60% of jobs could be impacted by AI in high income nations. Um, and that, of course, includes the legal sector as well. So it's not just lawyers that can use AI, but increasingly clients and maybe consumers as well. I'm curious if you've seen any trends in your own work and if that's posing any new challenges for you or, or your colleagues. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's right, obviously, to be outward facing in terms of the, our clients and the uses to which they are putting AI, but it's impacting us as a sector, too. Um, and, you know, we are seeing that increasingly coming in. So looking at work streams um, where you can streamline processes, so things like you know, heavy document exercises like disclosure in the context of litigation or a big doc review, inevitably, you know, there is a rate of progress where AI may be used to streamline those processes. Things like, you know, I had something earlier today where we had a bundle of 2000 documents and we were trying to pull out a chronology and a cast list of individuals who were involved. And we thought, you know, there's real efficiency there if we can use AI tools to do that. So, and I think it's right that we look for those opportunities and that our clients expect us to do that where that's appropriate. Um, but I think where we are at at the moment, inevitably, human oversight and expertise remains essential for many of the tasks that we do. Um, and our clients will very rightly not expect us to be outsourcing that to AI tools or certainly the technology that's available at the minute. So we're very cautious about over-reliance on the output of those technologies and having that sort of overlay of human um, oversight of it. And I think, you know, particularly where there's clear sort of legal and commercial risks for businesses. It's something that we are extremely mindful of to ensure there's appropriate guardrails in place to mitigate the risks. I wonder if I can pose a bit of a, a challenging question, because I think some some people see that these kind of developments as reducing the need for lawyers in the future and increasing the accessibility of the legal system. But so, some people think that might generate more work and others think, you know, it's it's creating more busy work and perhaps AI can you know address that too but 
can AI really do all of the jobs all of the time and in areas like justice and law to a good enough degree? There's such a divergence of thought, isn't there, on the extent to which development in AI will impact on job displacement. So, you know, we heard at the end of last year, Elon Musk speaking at the Bletchley Park AI Summit saying in the future, there'd be no need for anyone to have a job unless they wanted to. Um, now, that's quite a dystopian view, I would say, and, and maybe at the sort of at one end of the spectrum. Um, but I think, you know, there are many that kind of share the view that there will be very significant job displacement. But personally, I think we're still very far from a world where AI can really do all of the jobs all of the time. The technology just isn't isn't there yet. Um, and, and that is particularly the case in jobs where human oversight and expertise is critical. And maybe I would say this and I'm biased, but I would certainly count jobs in law and justice as remaining firmly in that category, at least for the moment. So hopefully I'm not out of a job just yet. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I wouldn't be too worried about your immediate future. Um, but there, like you mentioned, there have been some really high profile comments and some debate around you know, the future outlook for working jobs. But I think what's clear from particularly in my job is that while the out longer term outlook might be a bit uncertain in the short and medium term, the UK is stymied by enduring skills gaps, particularly in digital and workplace skills um, that businesses and organisations need to innovate and particularly drive those AI enabled innovations. So it's really about kind of getting skills in place to build this kind of AI revolution. But considering these kind of large comments or, you know, large scale uh, interventions, how do we ground these conversations around AI's impact on jobs in a way that's productive and supports people and businesses to really kind of thrive in an AI enabled world? They're going to need to kind of adapt to these uh, new demands in the in the market and these new challenges that AI brings. There are obviously great opportunities, but I think that sometimes the conversations that talk about existential risks or um, the a future of no jobs perhaps obfuscates uh, this conversation that needs to happen now. How do we? How do you think businesses can really get to the nitty gritty and the practical for what matters to them? Yeah, well, I think it's going back to that point on kind of managing workforce concerns and job displacement. I think a really big part of that, as you say, is looking at upskilling. So businesses assessing, you know, if we if we are going to be working in a different way, what does that mean for our existing workforce? And actually, are there people that are undertaking their jobs in a particular way now that we think that's going to change in the kind of short, medium, long term? And how do we upskill those people or bring in more people to um, service that need. And I think that's going to be absolutely essential. Now, the way in which you do that for employers needs to be very carefully considered. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we've been speaking with a lot of businesses about is, you know, what um, is your existing policy around the use of AI? Um, have you got guidelines in place for that? Because, you know, you're seeing a bit of a divergence at the minute, I think, between sort of company authorized use of AI and perhaps informal use of AI around the edges, right? And, you know, there's potentially a generational gap there too. So, you know, are some of your employees using AI, but you don't have the guidelines in place? And what does a good performing employee look like at the moment? Is it someone who can leverage AI uh, in a in a way that perhaps other employees haven't sort of grappled with yet or you haven't given them the necessary training to upskill them to be able to do that so you know some businesses will be quite advanced in their thinking on this because they've been using AI for a number of years some businesses will really be at the infancy of understanding 
the way in which they can leverage this for the business and what the right approach is for them on upskilling. But I think what businesses really need to do is make sure that wherever they are in that curve, they're at least on the curve, that they're not being left behind. Definitely. And I think when I, another thing that came out of the report that we wrote was that many businesses don't feel they have those policies and processes in place. And I think that is very much the kind of first step is do some thinking and get some guidelines in place. Your employees are probably already tinkering and thinking about how to do this. And maybe you should be thinking about leveraging those, that expertise there and the experience they've already got on the ground and how they're kind of thinking about how these tools can help them do their jobs now. Um, but in the context of that kind of wider skill shortage, um, an obvious uh, corollary would be that businesses will need to be thinking harder and harder about how they can attract and retain talent. Uh, is that fair to say? And probably the types of talent pools that they're looking into? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. And I suppose it goes back to something we were talking about earlier in AI in terms of challenges and opportunities. So I think that is a challenge across many sectors for a variety of reasons. And as we've talked about focusing and upskilling, workforce will be a focus as well as remaining competitive in the market and attracting uh, new employees. But also, I think there's opportunities with that. So, you know, as you say, looking at different talent pools uh, will be important. And that could have a, a positive impact on the business, for example, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, potentially, that you're, you know, sourcing employees from different um, talent pools than you have traditionally. So I wouldn't look at that solely as a as a challenge, but also perhaps look at it positively as an opportunity. Having diverse teams, particularly around AI, is, is especially important when we're thinking about handling the, the bias potentially of, of, out, of outputs and how we how we manage those. And I think you know diverse teams are definitely the best place to kind of do that. Um, but how does flexible working then fit into the equation? And you know, this year we're expecting the day one right to request flexible work to be put into law. So Will we see an enhanced focus on flexible working options to attract that sort after talent? Yes, that's right. So 6th of April this year, we're expecting statutory right to request flexible working to come in as a day one right for UK employees. So the current state of play is that you have to have 26 weeks continuous service with your employer in order to make a flexible working request. Um, after 6th of April, you'll be able to do that right from your first day. Um, I think um, while this is clearly um, an important development. It's important to remember the context, which is that we have had the right in the UK to request flexible working for over 20 years now. Um, you know, the two decades since have seen a really accelerated shift, most notably, I think, you know, during COVID and beyond in attitudes towards flexible working, um, showcasing the potential mutual benefits of that. So there's been a real focus on that in the last few years, embracing greater flexibility. Obviously, lots of businesses had long periods of working from home, which made businesses reflect on whether or not that was workable going forward. And also employees who got used to working from home and maybe didn't want to go back to a pre-COVID, you know, five days in the office. Um, so that is an important development. But as I say, you know, that that right has existed already, but I think the government is hoping that reforming the regime, bringing it in as a day one right, will give employees more confidence to make a request, um, allow obviously more employees to access flexible working potentially, and it could help employers to recruit and retain staff because I think there's been lots of studies done that have shown that, as they particularly post COVID, it's quite high on the agenda for workers, particularly. 
um, maybe those who have caring responsibilities outside of work, but also younger employees who maybe came into the workforce during COVID and, you know, have never had an experience of having to be in the office five days a week and really don't care for doing that. I think the day one right is is an interesting development. I think it's a you know like you say it's something that's not particularly new. Making it a statutory day day uh, day one right in is great progress. But I think there's it's a it's a great support for for employees. But equally, businesses are going to need support in order to offer this type of flexible work. And it's not just about those hybrid working roles. It's also about other types of flexible work that can really help people manage uh, their life responsibilities alongside their job. Um, and they need support about thinking about how they can do that, what tools they can use, whether technology can help. Um, and I'm, that's what I'm really hoping to see from 2024 is a bit more of a development from the conversation around, you know, getting people back into the office and shifting it a bit more towards how we can make flexible work work for every type of uh, business and every person in every sector. I think that should really be the, the ultimate ambition. So hopefully we can have a bit more of a, a productive debate around flexible work in, in 2024. Um, and I particularly think that, you know, for employees and candidates, companies approaches to, you know, flexible working are, are bellwethers for their broader approaches to management and culture. And that kind of ultimately informs their decisions about their career. So culture is obviously about much more than that. But how do you see employee expectations on culture and social issues in 2024? And how does this line up with how businesses are thinking about their business practices in line with their talent pipelines? I think culture quite rightly remains a really core focus for many organizations and we've seen you know employees saying that that is high on their agenda in terms of choosing where they will work so it's obviously a key factor in attracting and retaining talent um as you say it's much culture's much broader than just focusing on ways of working one thing to draw out as you have done is diversity equity and inclusion i see that as one of the core aspects of culture and particularly looking at tech I think that's a two-pronged um, issue because the first aspect is the lack of diversity across the tech workforce itself and the work that needs to be done as you say to broaden that out um, but I think the second aspect of that is that lack of diversity's impact on the products that are being designed and produced. So we talked earlier about AI and machine learning, and that's a really good example of this. So uh, I think without the appropriate guardrails in place, the outputs generated by those technologies could lead to bias and discrimination. And that's because it's based on the data that's used to train the machine's learning, which in turn is obviously dependent on the individuals who are uh, working on that product. So I see this as being a really core issue for tech to grapple with in the next 12 months. Um, another thing that I think is worth drawing out is tone from the top, which is incredibly important for culture. Uh, we've seen some high profile scandals across the tech sector involving senior leaders dominating headlines, and that can have long term impact on organisational culture internally and externally. Um, and I think you'd be naive to think that that wouldn't have potentially an impact on future talent pipelines. And then I think the final thing just to draw is we are seeing and unfortunately have seen because of world events in the last 12 months, um, you know, a number of societal issues 
high profile global conflicts, etc. And I think senior leaders are expected to be vocal on those issues in a way that perhaps in the past they haven't been. Um, and workforces just expect to hear the views of the company on issues that are important to them and for them to take a, um, a position on them. And often staying silent isn't an option anymore for senior leaders because it can infer complacency or even support on certain issues. So there's a lot going on with culture and there's lots more that we could talk about, but that's just a couple of things that I think businesses should be thinking about. It's an interesting one because I think there's also a bit of maybe let's call it a cultural divergence. We've seen some news stories of US business leaders pushing back on on DEI commitments in recent weeks. And, you know, is this start of a concerning trend amongst, you know, some firms who had broadly accepted the business case for DEI initiatives and investment and where do we think the pushback is coming from and is it sustained? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really uh, difficult topic to grapple with, particularly for global businesses, right? Because you're right, it is, uh, there's a really acute focus on it in the US and that um, is partly because of a US Supreme Court decision um, in students for fair admissions in Harvard, which has led to a heightened risk of potential challenges for some employers in uh, using affirmative action in the US in order to improve the diversity of the workforces. Now, that's obviously a US decision, and we're not quite seeing the same issues in relation to positive action measures here in the UK right now. But as I say, for global employers, they're thinking about their policies on both sides of the pond and trying to be consistent to the extent possible. And so the, that ruling will inevitably have an impact on, um, you know, what employers are doing here in the UK too. And I think, you know, we do need to be mindful of that in terms of impact on diverse future talent pipelines, as that's the case in the education sector. Um, but important in terms of, you know, graduates coming through and out of US universities, et cetera. And that could have ripple effects for the tech sector globally. Um, but I think sort of taking a step back from that, you know, the business case for having a diverse and inclusive workforce is well versed and arguably, I think, has never been clearer. There are decades of accumulated research, social science, which shows that those who embrace diversity and inclusion ultimately outperform those who don't. So many organisations, I think, remain quite rightly focused on improving diversity, notwithstanding sort of that, that backdrop. Um, but, you know, it's important to recognise the environment is particularly challenging, especially for global employers at the minute as they seek to advance meaningful global DEI policies. And in particular, I think DEI is something that's especially important to a, a younger generation now coming into the workforce, a generation that is increasingly making up a significant portion of the workforce that puts a real emphasis on social issues like DEI, but also around sustainability as well. Do you think that there's a growing importance in some of these issues as more of this generation enters the workforce. And as these younger colleagues come into the workforce, do you think they're shifting the attentions of older workers and senior leaders um, and perhaps influencing that tone from the top that you mentioned before? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I, I see that as a positive. You know, the issues that new generations coming into the workforce care about and focus on are, you know, are different than what we saw, you know, even five, 10, 15 years ago. So this is pr a pretty rapid shift. Um, and I think actually that's positive in terms of holding businesses, you know, to account, because actually ultimately if businesses want to attract the best talent, then they need to listen to what's important 
to individuals coming through and that's the future of their business so um so yes I completely agree with you I think issues like you know ESG sustainability culture all of that are coming to the fore in a way that um we, we just haven't seen in the past and businesses need to listen to that and as we talk about big social and cultural issues it will escape absolutely no one that we face the prospect of two big elections this year one uh, in the UK and one in the US um, so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what role you think technology could play in these elections in the in the debate and more broadly and how the various permutations of outcomes so thinking about a potential second Trump presidency or a new UK administration how are, how are those various outcomes kind of focusing focusing minds I mean I think it is a really interesting point in time as you say with the elections coming up you know lots of businesses that we work with look to us for some certainty in terms of what's coming down the track and that's really hard to predict at the moment um because obviously you know we could be facing a change in government on both sides of the pond we just don't know um and and that's important in terms of thinking about the outlook for the year ahead and some of the things that each of the respective governments have said that they will do in the coming 12 months. Um, you know, it's not at all clear if there were to be a change in government, whether actually those legislative changes, policy changes, focuses, et cetera, would remain the same. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty, which can be really hard, I think, for, for businesses to deal with, grappling with, you know, will these changes come through or not? And what should I do now? You know, if I move too quickly to make changes, to be prepared, you know, is that actually going to um, detrimental if, if actually, you know, there's a change of view on whether legislation is going to come through or not? So I think it's um, it's a bit of wait and see um, at the moment. Um, and as I say, not always an easy position for businesses to be in, to have that uncertainty. But it's going to be uh, sure to be an interesting 12 months, whatever way we land, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so away from the uncertainty of the elections and perhaps the commitments of uh, various candidates or parties, but what is the global legal outlook in 2024 for tech businesses? And how is legislation and regulation set to shift over the next 12 months? We've just spoken about the uncertainty of a couple of elections, but what are we actually expecting to see from the next 12 months? So there is quite a lot going on in the next 12 months, but there was a couple of key things that I thought for the tech sector in particular, I would be watching out for. So the first one is potential changes on the horizon for restrictive covenants, which is non-compete clauses in employment contracts um, prohibiting individuals from going to work for a competitor after they end their employment with their, for their current employer. Um, there is a proposal um, that non-competes in employment contracts will be limited to three months. The government announced this in May of last year. That um, legislation has not come in yet and we don't have a time frame on that. No specific time frame has been announced for either legislation or some guidance that they promised would go alongside it. So progress towards implementation in 2024 isn't out of the question, but coming back to the uh, point about elections and a change of government, that really could change things. A lot will depend on that. So at the moment, the current position uh, remains, which is that there's no um, legislative limit on non-competes, albeit that they need to be reasonable. And there's lots of there's been lots of litigation in this area. Um, but 
if that change does come through in 2024 or beyond, I think that will be quite a significant shift for the tech sector because lots of tech businesses will have non-competes in employment contracts which exceed three months. So, you know, some see it as a positive in terms of, you know, it frees up the market, people can move around more freely. Some are very worried about it because they say, well, you know, I've invested in this employee development and then they could walk out the door and, you know, three months later be working for my main competitor so that's that's quite a big change potentially to keep an eye on um the next thing i think is worth pulling out we talked a lot about um diversity equity and inclusion issues already but i think there's a few particular areas on that to watch so one is social mobility which we haven't talked about yet um a strand of diversity which we isn't a protected characteristic under uk equality legislation but there's lots of research um that has been going on and it's focused on the minute which tells us social class can be a bigger or comparable barrier to career advancement as many of the other characteristics that are protected um we also know that diversity issues rarely exist in isolation and socioeconomic background often interacts with other parts of their identity which are legally protected. So we're seeing a real championing championing of social mobility in tech sector, um, more so I would say at the moment in the UK than in the US. Um, they're sort of a little bit um, behind on the conversation on that, but I think that this will be important in the tech sector and it could help to improve position of people with other diversity characteristics and hopefully lead to a wider future talent pipeline coming up through the ranks. Um, I think the other point on DEI to look on is um, increased reporting on DEI. So, you know, beyond just gender pay reporting, which we've had for a number of years, we're seeing some businesses voluntarily publishing demographic uh, diversity data, undertaking pay gap analysis, etc., across various diversity strands. And we expect that trend's going to continue over the coming year. Um, and then just a final point on DEI, um, particularly for fintech, there's a lot of um, progress in the financial services regulators proposals to boost DEI across the sector. So we're expecting some policy statements, new rules, et cetera, in the latter part of the year. So that's just a couple of things. There are lots of other things we could talk about, but those are the sort of some key things to be aware of. Thank you so much for all of your super interesting answers. They were really great. For the second half of this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Derek Tong, partner, global technology sector leader at Linklaters, as we look at the tech investment landscape in 2024 amidst a challenging geopolitical and economic backdrop, including war in Ukraine and the Middle East, increased cost of finance and high inflation. Derek, thanks so much for joining us. But before we start, for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind telling us a bit about your role at Linklaters and what keeps you busy on your day to day? Sure. Um, thanks, Jake. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a partner in the M&A team. About half my practice is dedicated to the technology sector. So I have a lot of big tech clients based in the US and in UK, mainly focusing on the European M&A acquisitions, also investment work. Um, and on the side, I also help sort of take forward the strategy for the sector for the firm. So I have a cross-practice uh, sort of um, meeting every month with other people in IP, TMT, across uh, different practice areas and across different offices as well, sort of talking about how we can sort of develop the technology uh, sector and strategy for the firm. Excellent. Just a small job for you then, Derek. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's kick off. Over the last couple of years, tech M&A activity has been trending downwards, but as we head into a new year, 2024, is there a reason to be 
optimistic about M&A and private investment, particularly in light of those developments in AI technology that I've been speaking about with Sinead. But are there any specific industries or verticals that we might see get the biggest boost? Uh, yeah, I mean, as an M&A lawyer, I certainly hope I can be optimistic. I certainly am. And I think lots of other people in the industry are as well. Uh, I think one of the things about there being a downturn in the recent years is there's a lot of overcommitted capital that is awaiting deployment. So a lot of PE funds really are having a lot of pressure from the LPs to deploy that capital. And I really think this might be the year where valuations sort of converge and there will be opportunities for uh, definitely on the PE financial sponsor and to invest that that capital and then equally so on the strategic side, you know, I think CEOs have made it abundantly clear that AI is one of their top priorities for this year. So I think we will see strategic M&A in, in that space as well. And yeah, I think sector wise, you're right. AI is going to receive a lot of focus, probably together with cyber. I think cyber and AI were probably the areas that received the greatest valuations in 2023. So I think all of that together probably translates, hopefully, into increased M&A activity. Amidst that kind of AI boom that happened last year, we saw, you know, the establishment of a number of new AI focused companies emerging or begin to emerge. And some are using proprietary models and others paid or open source. And not all of these companies can be successes. So when investors are looking at these businesses, what type of success signals are they looking at to kind of get beyond the hype? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, at a high level, you know, on the one hand, you have the argument that open source models have broader community benefits, they're more cost effective, they create more trust with customers, they're more transparent. And on the hand, other hand, you've got, you know, proprietary systems will be more customizable, have greater use cases, can be applied in a more targeted way. You know, so I think ultimately there's going to be demand, demand for both models, depending on exactly, you know, what the use case is. I think from an investor perspective, though, it's probably more of a focus on the normal things in terms of broader issues, in terms of the ability of the product to scale at speed, the path to return on investment, the overall business logic of the proposition. You know, and I think investors may focus more on those fundamental aspects rather than the underlying model itself. And when I was speaking to Sinead, we were talking a lot about the skills gap and the talent squeeze. And I know this is particularly acute around AI skills. So is talent acquisition playing a bigger role in that M&A and activity? Yeah, I think not just um, in, in the last couple of years, but actually probably for the last decade, there's been an increasing focus on sort of the aqua hire type transaction, especially for smaller startups. So we see a lot of, you know, uh, acquisitions that are primarily based at getting talent. And, you know, talent is probably one of those primary drivers of that startup M&A world you know, together with IP and tech. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think we'll continue to see that, especially in the AI space, um, probably together with acquisition for other reasons, like access to a customer base or a particular market. We also think that might be reflected then, you mentioned cybersecurity before, but I'm also thinking about that kind of complementary and enabling technologies around AI. So then I'm thinking about things around cloud and data centers and robotics. Are we seeing emerging kind of trends in those areas too? Yeah, absolutely. I think AI is just one piece of the puzzle, as you rightly point out. And I think acquisitions will focus around those whole technological solutions and capabilities to be the key driver towards an M&A acquisition. So it won't just be on AI, it will be around those uh, sort of ancillary technologies as well. Absolutely. So we've had a bit of an optimistic look around what AI might do for the investment landscape. But how does this optimism square with some of those geopolitical and economic challenges of today, as well as that enhanced regulatory scrutiny? Will that just be affecting mostly larger activity. What do you what do you expect to see in 2024? 
Yeah, I think the regulatory situation is really interesting. I mean, in recent years, we all know that uh, merger control uh, has been a big issue for the technology sector, as well as the whole raft of new foreign investment regimes that are sort of implemented, have been implemented globally. And I think that will continue to be a focus uh, in, in the upcoming years. You know, what I would say and the reason why it's still potential, it, we still have potential to be optimistic is that, you know, I think the majority of deals are still going through. So it, it, there's a lot more scrutiny. There's a lot more focus by regulators, but actually um, things still get cleared. It just takes a lot longer. They may go into second reviews. There's more scrutiny, more press. Uh, there's really more of a process to go through. But I don't think that ultimately has stopped the M&A activity. So I think that's probably the, the reason to be still optimistic. When we look at that that optimistic picture, sometimes when we look at the UK's nations and regions, we see investments skewed perhaps more towards London and southeast based firms. So how can the UK help spread that investment across the whole country? I mean, I saw there's some evidence to suggest that investors are more likely to conclude a deal if government was participating in a VC fund. Is there a role for government in kind of building that um, that investment activity itself? I think that's probably right. I think it's undeniable that London has been at the forefront of the kind of UK tech ecosystem. Um, I think over sort of uh, 40% of the startups sort of in the UK are based in London. So, you know, that's no surprise. I think there are a number of other regional hubs that, you know, have received a lot of investment and are home to a lot of high growth technology companies that are very successful as well. Um, But you're right. I think there are more things that the government could be doing. Um, probably slightly outside my wheelhouse as a lawyer, but you're right. I mean, there are things that, you know, the local governments could be doing to liaise better with the central government to sort of help sort of build that connectivity. There's probably things like improving infrastructure, access to, um, you know, access to the right technologies. And then also probably things um, around funding, as you say, like dedicated regional funding that could be dedicated to particular areas and sort of greater publicity around sort of um, those sorts of startups and greater access to you know angel investors and the VC ecosystem for those regional hubs. Yeah, I completely agree. And we were really pleased to see actually the Secretary of State adopt Tech UK's recommendation for a scale up sprint to identify new investment vehicles and regulatory changes to support scale-ups um, just last week. So that was a really excellent bit of progress in this in this space from the from the UK government. Um, one of the things that we also spoke about with Sinead was there has been, from some quarters, a bit of a pushback against DEI initiatives, particularly in some large US businesses, and against Net Zero, where the UK government received some criticism from for perceived rollbacks on Net Zero plans. So when it comes to these areas and perhaps ESG more broadly in this context, how are investors looking at business ESG frameworks? and considerations around DEI and sustainability in their investment decisions? Yeah, I think it's just going to receive increasing focus. I think there will always be and there will continue to be important decisions when making sort of um, investment decisions of ICs. I, I think there's just there's just pressure from the investor base and a broader community for people to focus on the ESG angle of their investment. So people will be focused on that and it wouldn't be right to just ignore that. Um, you know, I think and that, that goes across the piece, I think. There's the kind of DEI piece and also the net zero piece. I mean, we've seen a lot of investment on net zero and I know we're focusing on AI today, but obviously the other area of sort of tech related investment has obviously all been around net zero. And we've seen so many businesses in the last year focus around sort of 
um, bolt-on acquisitions that help with your transition to, to net zero. So many companies have made declarations around and commitments around net zero, and now they need to find you know ways to actually meet those targets. And technology is just one of those ways that they can achieve that. And through investments, acquisitions, you know that that's a path where that many look to to kind of achieve those targets that they've committed to. When you talk about those commitments, do you feel like some uh, issues like DEI and net zero are competing for business attention in this kind of context? And are these various ESG dimensions valued equally by investors despite these kind of pushbacks from certain from certain places? I think so. I mean, I, I think there are, there are probably different um, different angles to it. But and you're right, it's such a broad sort of topic when you talk about ESG. But I do think there is a lot of focus on DEI as well, as it rightly should be. And they just sort of had different angles. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I don't think that investors can only look at one by sacrificing the other. I think you can focus on both. And do do businesses then and investors see the role that net zero can play in mitigating the impact of those global geopolitical things that we spoke around, i.e. looking at the war in Ukraine and the impact on energy prices? Do businesses see the value of, of net zero in tackling that as a kind of global societal issue? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you, you have to look at these things holistically and with the war in Ukraine and the, the change in oil prices and gas prices. I think all of that plays into investment decisions. I mean, it, it just, it's just one of the factors that, that, that we have to take into account. Just to go back to AI, we were speaking around how AI is changing work and jobs across the economy. So looking at finance and investment jobs then, I'm imagining they're not entirely insulated from all of these developments and they'll be looking at how they can imply AI in their work. So how is AI changing finance and investment jobs? Yeah, I, you know, I think, as Sinead, I'm sure, said, AI is going to change works and jobs, you know, across the piece, not just in finance and kind of investment. But in particular, in those areas, I think it's sort of the same in terms of where there's opportunity to create synergies, have a better customer experience, be more productive, be more efficient. And where AI can help with that, companies will be looking, looking for that. So it's sort of not definitely not immune to AI um, and definitely for some areas of finance and investment. So definitely in potentially like back office situations, there could be more opportunity. And I think actually there are probably a lot of other a lot of. Uh, people in that area are really looking at AI to to create uh, efficiencies in those areas. I think in terms of core business and, and front office stuff, it may be a bit harder, especially in finance, I guess, due to just the, the, the vast amount of regulation. I think, you know, it's not just going to be as simple as just rolling it out. Um, there's going to be a lot of concern around complying with regulations, and that's probably going to result in a in a slower rollout for some of the core functions in finance and investments, where there's just going to be a lot of scrutiny, I think, from regulators about sort of um, having AI in kind of regulated in a regulated role. How would that square then with the potential for, you know, enhanced data insights from from AI in these areas? Would we expect to see, you know, potential growth in investment activity as finance and investment workers increasingly are able to leverage more data insights and get these productivity boosts? I think so. I mean, it'll be another thing in terms of one of the one of the things you look at for for kind of an investment would be, you know, the data that you could get as well as the efficiency, the productivity boosts that we talked about. And data is no different. Again, it kind of goes to the point around the, the regulatory angle. I mean, there's just going to be so much scrutiny where you're bringing on board AI for enhanced enhanced data insights and how that squares with data protection regulation, other regulation to make sure that customers are protected. And I think that's probably going to again result in potentially 
see slower rollout of those technologies in those areas. But I don't think that means that there'll be less interest in it. It will just mean that, you know, in terms of integrating it and rolling out, it may be slower than in other areas. How are the big UK and US elections influencing thinking? And I'm thinking around the various permutations of outcomes I was discussing with Sinead, a potential second Trump presidency, a new UK administration. How are all of these kind of geopolitical winds set to change the, the landscape, the investment landscape? Um, and, how, and how are businesses and investors thinking about 2024 in the context of two major elections? Yeah, I think you can look at it either way. I think generally there, there could be investors who hold off because they want to see how things shape up, how things settle. But, you know, as I mentioned, I think that may be overridden by the fact that people just have, especially in the financial responsible, just, this, you know, just this vast amount of capital that they just need to deploy and they can't sort of wait for it. Um, you know, in terms of how it will play out, you know, your guess is as good as mine in terms of, um, you know, how what, what changes will actually impact it. I think there'll just be categories of people who wait to see how it plays out and then make their investment decisions and people who just can't wait and sort of have to just go on the current landscape. Finally, how is the UK positioned to hold on to its place as one of the top tech investment destinations in Europe? We know that we've spoken a lot about some of the great startups that we've got and we've spoken a lot around AI. How is the UK positioned in a global sense to, to hold on to its place as one of the top investment destinations? Yeah, I think it will just be uh, it'll be very well placed to keep its um, you know keep its position as a, one of the top investment hubs for for Europe, uh, and you know it has been for a number of years, and I don't see anything changing that. Um, you know, there's just a huge interest and a huge talent pool in the UK, and I think that is widely acknowledged by the global investment community, and I think we'll continue to see investment from uh, from from all institutions globally. Uh, into the UK, and we'll continue to see that together with other destinations in Europe. But I, I don't, I don't see any shift that would mean that the UK would lose its its hold on on, on the kind of uh, the global investment world. Looking at AI regulation and developments in Europe compared to in the in the UK, are, are investors looking at the UK's approach as slightly more friendly for investors? Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I think um, it, it's it's early days. I think when when kind of the when there's more progress around kind of the UK sort of white paper on AI and how it might play out and um, how that's going to play out in actual legislation versus the EU approach, I think that will definitely have an impact. I think it's slightly too early to tell just for the moment, but that will no doubt be one of the factors that influence um, kind of how AI investment is managed between the UK and Europe for, from a global perspective. Definitely something to keep an eye on in 2024. Derek, thank you so much for your time. So what can we expect from 2024? A continued focus on AI as businesses and people seek to apply this technology to real world business problems and investors look to its huge potential in driving growth and spawning new innovative businesses. Sustained focus on tackling talent and skills gaps with an eye on flexible working, culture and ESG, including issues like DEI and net zero, which are important for those assessing the value and fit of these businesses. And that goes for candidates, employees and investors alike and some new legislation around non-competes and DEI reporting is coming down the track too, though overshadowed by the prospect of elections on both sides of the Atlantic in the autumn. But what is abundantly clear is it will be a whirlwind year for us all, but particularly in the tech sector, and Tech UK looks forward to working with our members to capitalise on the great potential of technology in 2024.